I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. If there's one thing that's clear from the reams of polling data gathered this election cycle, it's that American voters are concerned about social mobility. Two-thirds of Americans believe that it will be harder for them to achieve the American dream than it was for their parents, and even more think it will be harder still for their own children. And the data on social mobility in the U.S. are indeed startling. Children born in the bottom 20% of the income distribution have a 4 in 10 chance of remaining there in adulthood. What role can schools play in putting more low-income students on the path to success? And what would schools need to do differently in order to do a better job? I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and I'm here today with our own Michael Petrilli, who's out this week with a new book, Education for Upward Mobility, that addresses these questions. So Mike, thanks for taking the time for our conversation today. Marty, thanks so much for having me. And, and I appreciate you calling it my book, even though in truth, I only wrote the introduction and the conclusion. Well, you're the editor and you've learned uh, how to get other people to do your work for you. That's right. So I learned from our other colleague, Rick Hess, uh, that uh, sometimes it's uh, a quicker note. And, and look, in this case, it made a ton of sense because I really wanted to learn from scholars in other fields, including the anti-poverty world, about these issues. And, and I learned a ton from them and, and really appreciate their great work that's in the book. So, Mike, that is a nice setup for my first question, which is I think a lot of readers will see the topic, how do we support social mobility? How do we increase social mobility in the U.S.? And say, why should we focus on education's role mm -hmm. uh, in accomplishing that goal? Why aren't there a lot of obstacles that schools face? Sure. So for, first of all, it's been my experience, actually, that most people would say, well, of course, education is a big part of this, right? That they would say that the, the key to opportunity, to economic opportunity, uh, is going to be a strong education. But unfortunately, at least when we hear the politicians talk, we don't hear much more than that. What kind of education? Are we talking about college, a four-year college? Are we talking about social and emotional learning? What? Now, at the same time, you're right that there's plenty of people who are frustrated that education reformers in particular have been saying for years now, you know, our schools, if their schools just got better, then a lot of these social problems would go away. Uh, and they are not wrong to be upset by that. It is obvious, and I, I try to make this clear in the book, that of course schools can't do it all. Uh, we are facing huge challenges as a country today. I think we are all more aware about those challenges perhaps now because of this presidential election. We have seen that poor and working class Americans have gotten hammered by this economy, not just recently, but in for the last several decades. And they are letting their anger be known at the, at the ballot box. Uh, overcoming those challenges is not something that schools can do alone. But the question that I do ask in the book is whether schools are doing everything they can. And, and importantly, whether those of us who consider ourselves education reformers, whether our strategies make sense, whether they are on the right track or not. And one of the most provocative questions you raise about the strategies that education reformers have been pursuing is whether they've actually set the right goal, right? Mm -hmm. You call into question the idea that college for all may not be the right organizing principle for education reform. And that's mm -hmm. really something that's been, I would say, an animating principle of education reform for a number of decades now. Yeah. What led you to 
draw that conclusion? Well, first of all, I, I think it is it is important to say that I, I think most in people in education reform have been focused on getting low-income kids to and through four-year college degrees. And there's a reason for that. It's not crazy. Uh, if you look at the data, you do see that if low-income kids uh, get to and through four-year college degrees, 90% of them will get out of poverty. And as you said at the top of the show, that is a much better outcome than what most uh, kids growing up poor will experience. So it is a life changer, a game changer. The problem is we are not succeeding. We're not coming close. You know, if depending on how you cut the data, in the book, Andrew Kelly estimates that if you look at the bottom third of the income distribution, uh, just 14% of those uh, low-income and working-class kids are making it through bachelor's degrees. So even if we could double that, which we should try to do, in which groups like KIPP and other high-quality charter school networks, which efforts around the Common Core and higher standards and better teachers and all the rest, that's all trying to do that. Even if we could double that, which would be an incredible outcome, you know, you'd still have a vast majority of low-income kids needing another pathway to the middle class. And, and I wanted to know, were there other pathways? Some people would say, look, there's just not. I mean, we just have to get that number as close to 100% as we can because anything less than that uh, means that these kids are just destined to, to live in poverty. Uh, the good news is that I found out that's not actually true. So tell me about some of those alternative pathways. There's a chapter in the book on industry certification, yep. for example. Is that something that you're optimistic about? Absolutely. You know, one of the most striking things, Marty, was when I started to talk to people outside of education policy, people like Ron Haskins or Isabel uh, Sawhill at the Brookings Institution, uh, who studied poverty and anti-poverty efforts more broadly. And I, you know, said, well, I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, this, this question about education for upper mobility. All of them, to a person, immediately went to career and technical education. The anti-poverty crowd loves CTE, uh, and it's because there are some very, very compelling, strong studies over many years showing very strong uh, impacts from those programs. Impacts in terms of higher graduation rates in high school, impacts in terms of greater labor outcomes, higher pay once kids get into the workforce, even higher marriage rates for boys that went through career academies, higher percentage of them that, that you know, years later had custody of their children. I mean, the kinds of social outcomes that you just don't see every day. Uh, now, it should be said, of course, these programs have got to be high quality. It can't be the old Votech stuff that we used to do in the, you know, in the, the 20th century where we tracked poor and minority kids into dead-end tracks. It's got to be high quality. And, and the best CTE programs, they are aiming for college. It's just not four-year college degrees. They're aiming for the associate degrees or the one-year certificates uh, that have value in the labor market. You already alluded to this a bit. I think there's more skepticism within the education community about the value of CTE than in some of the uh, sort of poverty scholars that, yep. that you spoke with. And one of their concerns is the variation in program quality you just spoke about. But another is just the question of who gets to decide, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I don't think you're thinking of that as the right path for your mm -hmm. children, and I'm probably not thinking about that uh, uh, for my kids. So uh, how do we as a society you know, make mm -hmm. these decisions? First of all, I'm not so sure. I've got one of my sons. I actually think uh, <laughs> maybe something you know, more technical in nature might actually suit him. Uh, look, we're, we're doing this interview from the Stanford University campus, and I, I think uh, Jeannie Oakes is probably just a stone's throw away here, uh, you know, famous for uh, really sparking the detracking movement back in the 80s. You know, she brought every, to everyone's attention the horrible tracking that was going on, sending, as I said before, poor and minority kids into these dead-end tracks. You know, I... Uh, 
I have a friend, uh, Justin Cohn. Many people uh, probably listening know of Justin's done a lot of work in school turnarounds. He told me a story when he went to work for Michelle Rhee in Washington, D.C. Uh, he was in charge of the high schools. He goes in on one of his first days to do a tour of, of one of the high poverty high schools in Anacostia. They said, hey, come on, let, let us show you our great technical programs we've got. One of them, shoeshine, shoeshine. How racist, how classist can you get? This was what, 10, 12 years ago? So people are not wrong uh, to be worried about something that feels like that kind of tracking. So uh, we can't do that. It can't be low quality and it can't be the system deciding for the kids. Uh, it's gotta be the kids and their families choosing among a variety of high quality pathways. Uh, we've seen this in New York City with their big effort around small high schools, a uh, strategy that can work if you've got, uh, again, the right approach, the right personnel, a real dedication to quality and accountability. Uh, this can work. Uh, it's not easy, but uh, it's certainly, in my mind, much better than what we have now, which is this, this college or bust mentality where we, you know, we send kids through these generic high schools. Uh, they graduate. They're not nearly ready academically for college. We send them there anyways. They end up in remedial education. They drop out with nothing but debt. I mean, this is not working. So you conclude the bike book, Mike, with a three-pronged strategy for schools to pursue to support mm -hmm. upward mobility. And uh, I think that's consistent with your broader argument that college for all may not be the uh, right end aim. Mm -hmm. But your first, uh, and I want to give you a chance to talk about each yep. of those briefly. Your first one is, though, to prepare more low-income students to succeed in college. Yep. So what do you think schools need to be doing differently to just accomplish that first basic goal? Yeah. I mean, first of all, what I argue here is that this is still mostly a K-12 problem. You know, there, we, we have uh, certainly plenty of uh, colleagues that are working on higher education reform. We're now having a debate about free community college. You know, I think that some of those higher ed efforts might help at the margins. I certainly know there are some low-income uh, low kids who come to college ready but still don't complete because of financial barriers or otherwise. But the vast majority of low-income kids, and actually all kids, the reason they're not completing college is because they're not ready in the first place. And the data clearly shows that. We've never gotten more than 40% of our high school graduates to the point where they are ready just in reading and in math. Uh, so if we want to dramatically boost the number of kids completing college and, and especially low-income kids, we need to get them there ready. That means, in my opinion, much higher expectations all the way through. That means higher standards and tougher tests. Uh, you know, all the reforms folks are involved with around teacher effectiveness and curriculum. Uh, I also think it's why uh, many of us are optimistic about about high quality, no excuses charter schools like KIPP that are getting dramatically better results. You know, KIPP's up to 44% of their graduates are making it two and through four year degrees. So, you know, four or five times better than the national average. Uh, so, you know, doubling down on those strategies makes sense. It just can't be the only thing we do. I think most of those ideas will be familiar to many of our listeners. Probably the two somewhat newer ideas that I heard, saw on your list uh, involve curriculum mm -hmm. and uh, as well as policies concerning what you refer to as strivers. Yep. Can yep. you say a bit about each of those? I'd be happy to. The, the curriculum point is one that uh, E.D. Hirsch has been making for 30 years and, and cognitive science has since proven him right, which is that the reason we've made so little progress with reading for low-income kids is that we have not been teaching them content. Uh, we've been treating reading as a skill. There's a part of it that's a skill. You've got to help kids learn to decode the language. We're doing better at that. Uh, but if we were serious about building their reading abilities, we would build their vocabulary, we'd build their content knowledge, and that means starting in kindergarten, 
teaching history and science and art and music and literature. And you do not see that in the typical American elementary school. You certainly don't see it in kindergarten, uh, first, second, third grade. Maybe you see it later. Uh, that's a tragedy. Uh, Who would be against bringing back more history and science into the early grades? I think kids would love it, teachers would love it, and it would do a world of good uh, for low-income kids. The reason that they, they can't, they, they look like they can't read or they, they pick up a book and can't understand it is because they don't know enough about the subject matter uh, to make sense of it. So that's something that we, we got to do and uh, is, is really, I think, low-hanging fruit. The second piece is about the strivers, and, and this is to say that in our policy debates and in our debates around uh, how we organize schools, uh, we have got to make sure that we pay at least as much attention to those strivers, the low-income kids that are coming to school, that are working hard, that are perhaps relatively high achieving, pay as much attention to them as uh, their lower performing or more troubled peers. And Marty, you know that that has not been something we've been able to do. You know, in the No Child Left Behind years, uh, all the focus was on getting low performing kids up to a very low bar. In a high poverty school, that meant that, hey, if, if you were a relatively high performing kid, your needs didn't matter. You were going to pass the test. And so schools had an incentive to ignore them. Maybe that's gotten a little better with our newer accountability systems. Now we're going through this big debate around school discipline where all the focus is on, you know, what happens to the kids who get suspended or expelled. We should have that conversation. We might need to dial back some of the, the policies that we've got, but nobody's talking about their classmates who are also poor, who are also minority, uh, and are not going to be able to learn if, if they don't have an orderly classroom. You know, if, if you are uh, high achieving or gifted or whatever label you want to use and you are affluent and you are going to school in the suburbs or in a private school, you know, you get to spend a big chunk of your school day around other high achievers, getting challenged, getting opportunities to go faster, go deeper. By and large, if you're poor and you're high achieving, you don't. Out of the so-called cause of equity, uh, you are told that you have to sit uh, in a classroom with kids who may be years and years behind you. Uh, you're now more likely to be in a classroom that's disorderly because of this discipline stuff. Uh, you're not likely to get to be in a tracked classroom in middle school that will get you on track uh, for AP courses. So uh, th to me, this is the real inequity, and that's something that we've got to solve as well. All right, so the second major prong in your strategy is preparing more low-income students to earn associate's degrees and in industry yep. credentials. Yep. So you talked a little bit previously about the value of those. How do we get more low-income students on course to yep. complete those successfully? You, you have got to start in high school. And and this is a tough one. I mean, I and I even know have some friends in the CTE world that are uncomfortable with this. They, they want to say, well, you know, how about having every kid do more, you know, be college and career ready? I just think that when you look around the country and the world at the programs that work best, there is some specialization that happens. And it happens at some point in high school where kids get to choose if they want a path that is more academic in nature, aiming towards a liberal arts experience in college or something that's more technical in nature. Uh, and, uh, and yet we don't provide that option to a lot of places just got rid of their career and technical education programs. We're down to something like 20% of kids who are concentrating in CTE, which I think is way too low. So we've got to bring back those opportunities. You know, if it's within big high schools, they could be career academies, they could be standalone CTE schools. I, I'm really hopeful about these models. Uh, so is Robert Schwartz who, and, and Nancy Hoffman, who wrote the chapter. Uh, these early college high schools that team up instead of with the four-year college, they team up with a community college or technical college. All of them aiming to get kids on a, a seamless pipeline 
so that when they graduate from high school, they also graduate with an associate's degree or they graduate with a technical certificate. They've had work experience. They've been around adults. They, and they're ready to, boom, get a job right away. And finally, you say we need to prepare more low-income students to follow the success sequence. Yes. So remind us what the success e sequence is and how schools can get more students on it. Yeah. So uh, several years ago, uh, Isabel Sawhill and Ron Haskins at the Brookings Institution struck upon the, uh, this, this realization that if you do three things in America, you will not be poor. If you graduate high school, if you work full time, and if you wait until you're 21 and married, uh, you will not be poor. And, and in most cases, you will be solidly middle class if you do those three things. Uh, and uh, when you look at those three things again, and you say, wow, this, this, what, what What's promising about that is it says, even if we don't get kids to four-year colleges, even if we don't get them to two-year degrees or one-year associates, and, and by the way, we should do everything we can to make that happen, but even then, they're still not destined to be poor if we can get them to graduate and we can get them into a job that they do full-time and if they delay parenthood until they are ready. Uh, you know, of the three, the working full-time is the most important one. And certainly critics say, look, if, if you've, all you've got is a high school diploma, it's not easy to find a full-time job, especially if you're African-American and there's still discrimination out there. Uh, so these things all interact. But it is also really hard to have a full-time job uh, if you are pregnant or you are caring for a young child. It's also very hard to finish your education if that is the case. So uh, certainly spend some time in the book talking about the role schools can play, as they have played for a long time, uh, in doing everything they can to drive down the teenage pregnancy rate. To, you know, we've made some progress since the early 90s. We've cut that rate in half. But compared to the rest of the world, we still have a sky-high teenage pregnancy rate. And we still have in this country a whole lot of young women who maybe aren't getting pregnant as teenagers, but are getting pregnant in their early 20s before they've finished their educations, before they've gotten a foothold in the labor market, before they've formed stable relationships, uh, and their children are being born into poverty and are likely to stay poor their entire lives. So, you know, my, my argument is that we have got to have an impact on this uh, parenting and family structure issue as well. My guest today has been Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Foundation, executive editor at Education Next, and often a frequent contributor to the journal. Uh, his new book is Education for Upward Mobility. We'll put a link on the website. Mike, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me, Marty. Congratulations on the book. Uh, listeners, I recommend it highly. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.